let's be honest for a moment. It's been a couple weeks that this podcast has been dark, and honestly, I'm the worst at picking albums for this podcast. Uh, the original concept was, hey, pick your favorite album out, and uh, let's give it a listen. And it seems like every time I kind of go back to the well, I end up picking things like greatest hits compilations or all the number ones or whatever from a group. And I'll be pretty frank, this week's Greatest Hits album is because I really don't want to pick an album from this band. I really enjoy their body of work and I enjoy who they are, but honestly, no individual album stands out as being head and shoulders above the rest. And I'm just going to pick a Greatest Hits album. When you think about the 60s and the 70s and rock music, you think about bands like, oh, I don't know, the, the Beatles, the Eagles, the Rolling Stones, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix, among a whole bunch of other guys. And this week, we're going to hone in on one of those other guys. Today, we're going to talk about the band Three Dog Night and their contribution to music. It's an episode that strays a bit from our normal format, but it'll be fun, I promise. Today, on Two Dudes and Tunes. listening to Two Dudes and Tunes, the show that brings two dudes together to talk about the impact of music on their lives every week, or in this case, every couple of weeks with the way I've been going lately. We also like talking about life and the value of pumpkin carving, which is apparently a thing on TV these days. Also, we need to take it back a notch and stage an intervention from my good friend, Chris Robinson. He's my co-host, and I noticed today he's wearing all the flannel possible and he's sipping a pumpkin spice latte. But but it's a Mountain Dew pumpkin spice latte? Chris, you can't get away with that, man. I, I resent, uh, I wholeheartedly resent this accusation. Um, because, well, you know what, I, I would not be caught dead, A, with Mountain Dew, uh, because I am not a 13-year-old playing Xbox anymore. <laughs> I'm not playing Halo. Uh, and second of all, like, would never have pumpkin spice Mountain Dew. That just sounds, ugh, that sounds awful. I will commend you, though. The flannel is very becoming, very Nick Offerman looking for you. So keep that up. Yeah, I, I wish I had even half the woodworking skills that he has. I wish um, I had half the mustache growing skills he has. <laughs> yeah, he is. Uh, he's up there in the Pantheon with uh, Tom Selleck and... Um, <laughs> Oh no, I can't remember his name. The guy from, um, oh, he's John Krasinski, maybe. No, he's got a great mustache. I'm thinking of the the guy from The Big Lebowski, who uh, who chats with him at the the bowling alley towards the end of the film. Um, oh, Sam Sam Elliott. A, yes, thank you. Um, he's up there talking in that about John pantheon. Goodman for a second. He grows a great mustache too. He does. He does. And as he would say, I am out of my element trying to remember all these actors <laughs> names from the great 1998 um, hit formerly mentioned on this podcast, the big Lebowski. Oh man. I know it. If we did a movie podcast, that would be like, 
it would either be episode number one or we would like push it back a little bit so that we could get our feet under us and, and do it justice. Cause man, that movie is funny. I think it's the most quoted movie we have on this show. So that's okay. I mean, it's yeah, bound to uh, be towards the top. Uh, two dudes and tunes brought to you by the Cohen brothers. Not really, unfortunately. <laughs> um, otherwise we probably wouldn't be doing a podcast for free. You'd have to pay for it or something. Um, <laughs> So what's new anyway, with you, man? I'm cutting. Uh, I'm cutting man, in. Let's go. <laughs> do it. Do it. Cut in, please. Nah. Um. Uh. So, I've had to redo my my show notes, listeners. I I just wanna I wanna say this is not the first time we have tried to record this episode. Um. We met up last week and got maybe ten or fifteen minutes in, and my ancient of days MacBook Pro failed me utterly. Uh, and so we just decided, you know what, let's just start fresh. Uh, but even prior to that, we had not gotten to make the podcast in like two or three weeks. So I've retyped the like small talk blurb (laughs) probably like four or five times. Um, because my memory has like a five day limit. So if it happened three weeks ago, it might as well be ancient history in your textbooks. Anyhow, for all the computer um, nerds, he shipped with a 64 K Ram, you know, so. Yeah. I don't know what that means. (laughs) Very, very small memory. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Um, but yeah, this, this week has been, uh, kind of a weird one because we've been doing inventory in my job, which is, is fine. It's not like, it's not an amazing task, but it's not really a lot of fun either. It it basically requires a lot of like standing in front of a bin full of product, counting the product, sticking a tag on it and moving on to the next thing. So man, I'd have to wear like sandals for that whole week because I can only count to like 20. (laughs) One, two, (laughs) oh darn, I got to start over. No. um, Where's my abacus? Yeah, yeah, I was about to bring up an abacus because that's the joke that you go to when you're talking about counting is an abacus. It's classic, <laughs> classic humor bit. Um, but so that's been kind of tiring. Uh, but in in between work and sleep, I've been binging Babylon 5 because as our listeners may have guessed, I'm kind of a nerd. So... Uh, I've I've been binging the uh, last best hope for humankind, and um, it's been a lot of fun. That show uh, is, if we're being honest, it is super low budget. Like, it's have first you seen TNG? Y- yeah, I but but worse. <laughs> like, uh, there's not the uh, the Gene Roddenberry industrial complex um, backing it, but. Man, like the the guy who wrote it, uh, J. Everybody calls him JMS, but it's like John Michael Straczynski or something. He had the whole show planned out ahead of time. Uh, so it was one of the first shows on television that actually did the whole arc from start to finish, and it's really a smart show. The writing is excellent. The characters are fantastic. Um, much like the first season of TNG, the acting is up 
bit rocky. Um, there's some really like, uh, I was talking with my dad about it a couple weeks ago. What did I compare it to? It reminded me a little bit of uh, like the original Batman series. Just really Ow. like, yeah, hammy, campy. Um, but man, it's, it is a great, great uh, world to live in, like a really good science fiction world to get sucked into. And like I said, the storytelling is fantastic. So that's been pretty much my week is like eat, sleep, work, binge Babylon five, go back to bed. Um, nice. So I, I'm going to stop talking about that now because uh, I'm sure our listeners have been put to sleep by the uh, sultry sounds of my voice talking about really dull stuff. Well, in my world, I, I remember watching Babylon five probably about, 15 years ago um, and then being stupid and selling the DVDs back to half price books uh, because, you know, it didn't connect with me, but I should rewatch it now. I just, speaking of weird things to start watching, I just started watching uh, the original Battlestar Galactica. So, Oh man, you and I both went for like, <laughs> what is the worst science fiction we could possibly consume right now? Well, it was, it was in my, like, what we recommend you watch on, uh, I think it's on Peacock. I was like, all right, here we go. Like, I'm doing it. Do it's, it. Uh, it's entertaining, <laughs> to say the least. But it was a little off-putting uh, the way it started, just because of the way um, Peacock has uploaded it to their streaming service. It's kind of, it's not, it's not right. Let's put it that way. There's, mm. there's episodes out of order, and you've got to figure out Ooh. Um, oh, that's what's awful. up with it. Cause they obviously yeah. just like speed loaded it in. Um, other than that, um, Tiffany and I in the TV world uh, have become addicted to the Apple original Ted Lasso that everybody's talking about to the point oh, that yes. uh, we both almost care about soccer, which is scary. Ooh, <laughs> never thought I'd hear those words come out of your mouth. You're one of those like, ah, it's, soccer. It's an amazingly well done show. And Jason Sudeikis has been one of my favorite comedic actors for a long time and to see him playing such a it's a funny role it's a comedy show but there is a lot of like heart behind it and a lot of dramatic just emotion behind it that he conveys in a way that is just so amazing and the first season of the show is a lot of fun it's really lighthearted for the most part you know it's about an american guy who's a football coach going over to the UK and coaching a soccer team by a lady who's that's owned by a lady who's trying to ruin her ex-husband by hiring the most incompetent coach for the team that she owns after the divorce. I had not heard that element of it and I'm super interested in it now because that is funny. So it's a revenge arc for her, but he ends up just winning over everybody. Like everybody loves his heart. And the second season is a lot more, serious in tone and it leaves you wanting hmm. more. Um, you learn more about what makes Ted the way he is and the, the struggles that he has in life because the whole first season is really all about just how Ted brightens everybody else around him. And then you learn why Ted is that way and some of the things, and it's just so good. Uh, the surrounding arc, um, the surrounding arcs, the other stories that are going on around him are amazing. Uh, and then unlike Babylon 5 or Battlestar Galactica, the acting is 
phenomenal. So you've got really starts the you've got really smart screenwriting and fabulous interpretations of it on screen. Uh, so oh, that's great! Must watch TV. Everybody's talking about it for a reason. It is amazing. Um, let's see. And then the only other thing that I really have to talk about. I mean, I've been putting in way more hours than normal at work. Uh, I think we'd talked on this show uh, about a month ago that I was trying to find another job within the same company. And I was just really, really kind of downhearted about a couple of interviews I'd had where I didn't think I was going to get a role uh, based on conversations with the people who were interviewing me after the fact. And then just kind of out of nowhere at like 11 o'clock at night, uh, two weeks ago, I got this email that said, Hey, by the way, when we backfill your current position, you know, these are the things we need to find for your replacement. And I spent the whole night like <laughs> sitting up, like, did I just get fired and not know? Like, what, <laughs> did I lose my job? Um, but then they, they also like, <laughs> for some reason called you and were like, Hey, uh, can you help us get your replacement like shoe hoarding in here? So to, to clarify that a little bit, I had told my new boss, like my new permanent boss who just started like three weeks ago that I really needed to do something different. I needed to rotate to, you know, even if I didn't get this promotion that I had applied for, that I was at a point where I had maximized my potential in the job that I had and that I needed to rotate into something else to keep my interest alive. Um, honestly, I'm really only good at any particular job for about two and a half, three years. And when it gets easy, when it gets to the point I can show up to work and kind of coast, that's when I need to re-engage and do something different. So yeah. I'd had that yeah, conversation yeah. with them that, hey, I've been doing this job for right at three years. Um, of the five guys that I compete with and I'm ranked against, I'm better than the next two of them combined uh, in all of our metrics. Like there's nothing like give me something else to do that I can help those other yeah, guys yeah. catch up or something. Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess, kind of a humble brag or whatever, but it's the truth. So let me do something different. Yeah. And then we interviewed with him for this promotion and he didn't like me for it. And that was all fine. So that night when he sent the email, like, well, when we find your replacement, I was like, well, what am I doing? Like, you haven't told me if I yeah. rotated to something else or if you I had a job. You buried the lead, sir. <laughs> exactly. So the next morning after sitting up all night and stressing about uh, what just happened here, uh, I called him and I was like, I think we forgot a step in this process. Um, what exactly <laughs> am I supposed to be doing uh, now oh, that I'm no. looking for my own replacement? He goes, oh, yeah, no, you didn't know. I, I, I decided to give you that job you originally applied for. Oh, <laughs> so geez. I went from being a, a regional manager for about a seven-state territory for my company to being a strategy manager for the whole nation. Um, nice. So I'm not going to be doing the day-to-day -day operations thing anymore, which is kind of nice because it will be a lot less travel. Um, yeah, yeah but I'm going to have the challenge of dealing with a whole bunch of different union contracts and dealing with how we measure metrics based on different contracts and agreements. And it's going to be a, it's going to be a challenging job. So right now I'm doing both jobs, which is terrible. Oh, good grief. That sounds awful. So today I interviewed uh, six of the 12 people that I have to interview. Uh, and hopefully by the end of this week, we'll make a decision and, we can start training that person to take off 
all the operations load and I can focus on my new job and not be such a flake to you. Cause the reason we missed the three weeks recording before you, your computer died was I kept skipping out on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Look, here's the thing. Like we're doing this because we enjoy it because it's fun. So if there were all kinds of pressure on you, mm-hmm. that would, that would be no good. This can't be the, like, we can't crap, crap. We can't crack the whip. No, I mean, if we couldn't crap, we would need to go to a doctor. We can't crack. They make drugs the, for that. Yeah. You get what I'm trying to say. It wouldn't be fun if we were both just like, hey, man, stop living your life and do this podcast. Well, and meanwhile, it's not like anything else has happened. I mean, come on. Like, that's two very minor parts of life. <laughs> Work, work and uh, watching TV are not the, the most important things that I do. So though yeah, sometimes I wish well, I was. <laughs> there's something to be said for leisure. If you can't like take a break, watch some shows, you're probably working too hard. That's my, that's my um, approach, I guess. When, when you and Megan have a kid, your new approach to leisure will be, I just want to like get on the ground and like, play with him or her or do whatever. Like, uh, that's the thing that is just amazing today. I got home a little bit early about five o'clock, uh, is early for me these days. And, uh, he was still up and running around and I was able to chase him around the house and he learned a new Mm -hmm. trick. He can carry his own bottle and drink from it now, uh, before he would carry it to you and hand it to you. Like, you know, give me, give me what I want. Uh, Uh, and Today, uh, Tiffany was sending me videos of him walking around the house with the bottle in his mouth. And I was like, oh, we got one of those babies, just like daddy. (laughs) (laughs) That is fantastic. But So I got to see his new trick and then got to spend some time with him before I put him to bed and came up here to record with you, which that's the most important thing right there. That's the one I enjoy. Absolutely. That's, it sounds like you have your head screwed on straight. Well, I need you to enlighten me since we're in podcast world now. Tell me, what is a three-dog night? Well, Chris, depending on who you ask, a three-dog night is a reference to how cold it was at night in Australia and how many dogs you needed to sleep with to stay warm. So three-dog night being a really cold night. Uh, Or it could be a whole bunch of bunk. Uh, There's a lot of controversy around how the band got that name. Uh, One of the girlfriends of some of the original members made a a joke. And I say that lightly. Uh, She kind of bounced around from band member to band member over the course of a couple of years. Uh, um, Told a magazine that that was the story that they came up with. And then a couple of years later, somebody was like, yeah, no, she didn't know what she was talking about, but no, no further enlightenment on, how the band got the name Three Dog Night. Other than it is really catchy. That is the most classic rock thing <laughs> I've heard in a while. Uh, of the uh, the classic uh, groupie uh, cutting cutting into the mix and uh, raising cane, as it were. That's so funny. Well, it it's it was kind of, it was kind of funny to me. You suggested this album and it like three dog night is one of those bands that uh, is just basically like one of the founding fathers of 
rock. At least I kind of think of them that way mm-hmm. because you hear their name tossed around in lists of like classic rock artists, but I couldn't have told you a single song that they did before listening to this album mm-hmm. because they're just a band that never, never came across my radar. They're not really a band that has a lot of guitar riffs that you learn as a kid, which mm-hmm. is, End of how I got my introduction to classic rock. And so listening to this album was kind of a, a funny experience in one way because it was like, oh, one is the loneliest number. I, I recognize that song. Mm-hmm. Oh, mama told me not to come. I like that song too. Oh, the song about Jeremiah being a bullfrog. That is also a song I've heard. So it it was nice from that standpoint to go like, oh, okay. So these are all, and it was kind of impressive that a lot of their songs turned into one of, you know, the biggest hits on classic rock radio. It's funny that they were all by the same band because I did not know any of, any of that before listening to this album. Well, I think it's important to talk about a little bit, you know, this is a band that really only created music for a really narrow window of time. Um, Basically, their musical creation years were 1968 to 1975, 76. Uh, They finished recording their last album in 75. So in that time, they created, uh, I believe, 10 albums. So, like, they were pumping content out just like a metronome mm-hmm. uh, in that time. And they have a very unique sound. They've got lots of really great harmonies. They're really big into kind of that electric synthesizer age of the late 60s that was popping up. Um, the, the Hammond organ is all over their music, uh, no matter where you look. Like, it's just quintessential late 60s pop rock um uh and to a point one of the things i want to talk about is they they're the band that coined the idea of blue-eyed soul you know you got a bunch of blonde-haired blue-eyed white guys playing essentially soul music and they popularized Mm -hmm. kind of that genre of music if you will that is still around today um but this band really is a loose amalgamation of people. Like it's not, it's not like Aerosmith. It's not like the Eagles where you've got a core group of five or six great guys who stuck together through thick and thin. Uh, the, they broke up in 76, uh, got back together in the eighties and then have been on and off again since then touring and whatever, but have not released any music uh, in our new music since then. Uh, and the band has had 25 or 30 members over the course of its yeah. entire life. Like it's a revolving door. So it's, there is a, performing like, ass. like a, a Ted talk level <laughs> chart on Wikipedia <laughs> of who played during what year. It's a chart with like everybody's name and then colored bars mm-hmm. that cross over uh, the x-axis of time. Yep. And so there's like, this guy played bass from 1969 to 1973. And this guy, and it's, uh, there's like a big gap in the middle mm-hmm. where, where they were totally they gone. broke up. 
And then they had spent all their money, we presume, and we're like, oh, crap, we better make some money. And so they're like, uh, you can see where it picks back up and, you know, certain members die. And so somebody has to take their place. But it, I was, I was surprised. I like a few bands that have revolving doors of members, basically. Um, like, yes. Yes mm-hmm. is one of those bands that, like, at one point, the original guy who was the lead singer wasn't even in the band anymore. And it was just a completely different thing. It's like that. What, um, the ship of Theseus, mm-hmm. isn't that the, the yep. ship that, you know, they you keep, keep taking out. On. Yeah. If you have switched out your bass player, your drummer, your organist, your guitarist, your lead singer, your songwriters, like, is it the same band anymore? But I mean, all the, all the stuff on this album had a consistent sound, Yep. which I find kind of fascinating that somebody had a, a core vision that they all stuck with because it, it sounds coherent. You know, it's not like scattershot. Well, a lot of that I think has to do with the original creative vision. Uh, this is a group that really focused on harmonies. Um, mm. They came together uh, through, I believe it was some sort of barbershop competition uh, yeah, and so sense. the original, the original vocal group that made up the core of this was Danny Hutton, Chuck Negron and Corey Wells um, made up the three like main components. And those are the guys for the most part you hear singing on all of their songs. Uh, they all kind of have the same vocal register. They have a really good ability to harmonize with each other. And so in some songs uh, like mama told me not to come or J- joy to the world, you know, it'll start with a verse by Danny Hutton and you'll have a chorus by Chuck Negron and then you'll have uh, a bridge by Corey Wells. But it almost sounds like the same guy. If you aren't listening close enough, you're like, wait uh-huh. a minute, what's up? <laughs> it, it's it's such a funny phenomenon. I, the multiple singer thing is not very common these days, but it's one of my favorite elements of any band. Um one of the more obscure ones that springs to my mind immediately is uh, later era Allman Brothers mm-hmm. had uh, Greg Allman playing keys and singing as he had since that band was band was founded. Uh, but then Warren Haynes, who came on in I want to say like the late '80s, early '90s, to kind of replace um, uh, replace their guitars because of course Duane Allman died or whatever, mm-hmm. but they have very complementary voices that are similar enough, mm-hmm. but different enough to create interesting textures. I mean, it's the classic thing about the Beatles, well, you know, it's also the Joe Walsh, um, you know, conundrum yeah. for the Eagles. Like mm-hmm. he just slots right in there with fry yeah. and you can't tell the difference in a lot of cases. It's like, yeah. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that the, the vocals, it's kind of funny. Like, I think the, the theme for me for this album was, was kind of every, everything being a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. And I think the vocals definitely fit into that thing because like you said, everybody sang and everybody had a good voice. Mm -hmm. Um, but there was still something about it that I either really liked the vocals or I didn't. Yeah. Um, well, and I feel that some way. Of it, I feel that way about yeah. the music too. I either really, yeah, really yeah. like what the music is doing or I just 
don't care. Like, nah, pass. So let's let's talk about the vocals then, since we're we're kind of both feeling the same way. I I don't know. I was trying to think of this before this episode, before we started recording. What makes something sound sound dated? Because one of the first things I thought when I heard the vocals uh, of the band was like, man, this sounds like something my mom probably sang in her high school choir. Like it reminded me, it's not similar, but like, have you heard that song Mm -hmm. Age of Aquarius? I can't even remember the name of the band who does that, but I remember my mom reflecting on singing that in choir and thinking how like, how like funny that was at this little choir in La Mesa high school in West Texas was singing such a like new age tune, but that's, you know, there's like a lot of really close harmonies, right? So none of the notes, the parts that guys are singing are very far apart. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is really like really up high. Like these guys have great range. Yeah. They can really get up there in their singing. And so I don't know if that's, you know, I'm always curious about the, the musical mechanics of what makes something feel out of date or timeless. And a lot of this stuff sounded really dated to me. So I'm going to say it's multifold. Um, the, the first aspect I think is the way they recorded this. So Mm -hmm. in modern music, I go in, I sing my part, you come in, you sing your part, and you listen to the, the recording of me as you're singing along, and we're not really doing it organically. This entire mm-hmm. album, or their entire work process, for the most part was, everybody get in a room and we're recording this live to tape. And so you've got yeah, yeah. the bassist playing bass, you've got the guitars playing guitar, the keyboards are going, and you got three guys gathered around one mic singing mm-hmm. and doing their, their yeah. thing. And they did record vocals separate from instruments, but all three of them recorded at the same time, like a, like a barbershop group would, or like a harmony group would like we're there doing this. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that is part of the reason it sounds dated. The other reason I think it sounds dated, and this is really derogatory or whatever, but they sound like the beach boys, except really messed up on drugs. So the Beach Boys sound really clean cut in like 1960s, yeah. like perfect, you know, everything. Uh, the guys you want your daughter to go out on a date with. Uh-huh. Three Dog Night sounds like the guy living in a van down by the river, just having the greatest time of his life and talking about yeah. you know, where he's going to get his next score. And there's a lot of truth to that. When you look at like, one of the reasons this band is such a revolving door of talent is they went on tour and -and so-and-so had to drop out because he had to go to rehab and they went on, you know, they they had to stop recording this album at Abbey road because two of the guys got arrested for possession of narcotics and customs. And like, this is the band I think that helped popularize the idea of drug sex and rock and roll. And it's why they didn't have the staying power of some of the other groups that then kind of rode those coattails to say, you know, we survived the sixties and seventies. Well, Three Dog Night sure did not. Yeah, no, they, they, I mean, some of them did because somebody survived enough to make money on reunion tours, but, but yeah, it's, your point is well taken that it, it, there is, there is even a little bit of pitchiness and I I don't want to harp too much on this because I think the organic nature of 
people just delivering a vocal performance that is not corrected to pitch within an inch of its life mm-hmm. and quantized to be on beat every single, you know, like mm-hmm. 64th note increment is all, you know, I, I'm not making an argument for, you know, quote unquote, perfecting music, but you can kind of hear where they're occasionally not in tune. And it, I mean, it could be because like you were saying, you know, they're, they're blitzed or whatever, but also, you know, I I think, I think some of it is just that genre, you know, the whole blue eyed soul thing is, is guys trying to imitate white dudes trying to imitate black artists who like wrote the book on soul music. And so I wonder if some of that maybe kind of got on my nerves a little bit too. This may not be a popular take, but I'm okay with not having a popular take for a change. Um, I don't think they imitate much of anything, honestly. I mean, it's obvious they're doing soul music. Like they're trying to be, yeah. but I think they do a good job being uniquely themselves. Like they're not yeah. ripping off anybody in the soul category that I can come up with just straight off the bat. Yeah. They're obviously influenced by soul music and they're obviously influenced mm-hmm. by certain groups, but I didn't get the feeling that, you know, it was just a bunch of white guys trying to do soul music. Um, no. And that I'm, but, I'm not necessarily, I'm not making the argument that they were, I, I probably used the phrase rip off and I shouldn't have, I don't think they were ripping anybody off. I just think they were approximating some of some, you know, the, yeah, exactly. Some of the vocal inflections mm-hmm. and things that people do in a song like, um, Oh, uh, try a little tenderness. Yep. That was obviously like a take on like gospel music in church. And I, I think in that song, actually it, it works. I think it sounds good, but some of it, while it didn't sound, you know, it's not like, it's not like they were like, Oh, we're going to be the white. I don't know, James Brown band or whoever, you know, yeah. like I, that's a bad example, but I don't think they were doing that. Yeah. But something about their synthesis of like, we're going to take, you know, the like flower power groovy kind of rock of the sixties and move it into the seventies with like big guitar parts and funky brass bands and soulful lyrics it it was super uneven for me their execution i guess either it worked really well or it didn't and maybe that maybe that was part of it too was just well what they were doing didn't always work so as we've been talking about this it kind of another old album that has popped up in my mind that we've talked about is marty robbins gunfighter ballads that album came Mm. out in 1959 so way before anything that uh three dog night did. And I remember specifically talking about the style, you know, that entire album was recorded in like nine hours or whatever. And they played everything live. They recorded it straight to four track for the entire thing. And it was done within, you know, a day. And I remember being blown away by just how good that album sounded. 
Mm-hmm. And that album seriously sounds like it could have been recorded in the 90s, uh, even the unmastered version, compared to all of this Three Dog Night music, which was remastered in 2004, mm-hmm. does sound so dated. And I think part of that is the concepts that are going on musically with Three Dog Night are kind of the you've got to crawl before you run concept where three yeah. dog night laid down all these groundbreaking ideas or, or maybe not necessarily groundbreaking for them. Like they weren't breaking the ground, but ideas that were really cool in the, in the period of time and music yeah. has moved on. You know what, what three dog night did empowered groups like the Jackson five to move beyond that in the seventies. And then, you know, the next group, the next group until you've got, you know, Kanye doing his thing today. And maybe we look at it through like the rose colored glasses of well, look at where we are today versus where we were in 68 when some of this music was coming out. Maybe that's yeah. coloring how we feel about it being dated more so than there being anything necessarily wrong with it. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't necessarily mean to suggest like, Oh, this is bad. No, I, no, I didn't I, take that, I, it that way either. Yeah. I just think, I think you're right. Um, especially when you look at the years that they were active, you know, recording their discography, uh, cause their first album one, um, dropped in 68 and then their last album, American pastime dropped in 76. And so they're, they're in that really fruitful period of music where they're moving out of the sixties and you know Woodstock and whatever that meant to people mm-hmm. into the middle 70s where we're starting to see uh you know like Led Zeppelin is is like at the height of their powers um uh, all that comes to mind is heavy bands like Black Sabbath um but then you know you got bands like Chicago who are also sort of coming up in that period who are taking the brass elements of jazz and bop and stuff, but also like a lot of keys. Like I, mm-hmm. I kind of thought of Chicago listening to this band as kind of like what I wish this band was because like from like a music theory perspective, a lot of three dog nights harmonies were fairly straightforward mm-hmm. um, and not quite as sophisticated uh, that's not to say it's simple music, um, but but I I think I don't know I I think you're right in that they were you know I, I hesitate to call them groundbreaking but they really were synthesizing the best of what's around mm-hmm. and it obviously made them a lot of success you know like the songs that. I recognized from this album are songs that you still hear played on the radio. Like another song that I didn't know was theirs that I was delighted to hear was Shambhala. Mm -hmm. And that is like one of the most seventies classic rock tunes on that album. You know, they have the like really high pitched falsetto bits in the chorus where they're singing Shambhala and you know the jangly acoustic guitars and stuff like the electric guitar on that al- on that track is probably the best guitar oh, play in the entire compilation oh, too it's so good but you know all all this stuff is 
they have a knack when when they're on, they're really on. They have a knack for writing really good melodies. It's just the stuff that was was off. I mean, because this album is all number one hits. And so there's no, some of that stuff that has They're not all number one hits, but they're all they not? hits. Oh, they're the hit. Yeah, they're the hit singles. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, they, they you know, charted. so they, it, let's put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's interesting to hear stuff that charted but didn't make it onto classic rock radio today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that some of that stuff was actually some of the more interesting stuff by just by dint of me having not heard it before. Um, Liar, that was an interesting tune Mm -hmm. that had kind of like a really like dark sort of driving tone. Um, Eli's Coming was another like kind of gospel-y. That's a great sort of track. It is. Um, But you can kind of, you can kind of see, or you can't see, you can hear this is, music we're talking about um you can kind of hear the elements of this that make it very much more of its time than something like what the beatles did and what hendrix did or whatever Mm -hmm. you know it's kind of comparing apples to oranges but it's just it's i guess what i'm saying is it's interesting to me a band like this that had such success in its day and has only had five or six of their songs really stick around. Um, whereas you listen to something, you know, any of the hits from the Beatles catalog, uh, they all still sound dated. It sounds of its time, but it's lasted. Mm-hmm. And I, I think some of that is probably just, you know, an intangible element that we could sit here and discuss all night. Well, like what makes this dated and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um but that was the thing that kind of preoccupied my mind with this album. Cause I didn't want to just come in here and slag it outright and be like, well, I hated this. It was dumb. Cause I didn't hate it, but some of it was just like, man, I feel like I'm watching. Uh, I don't even know. Just like, um, I don't know, just like a cheesy, you know, those cheesy movies about the seventies that came out all over the nineties, uh-huh. you know? Um, I'm trying to think of whatever the one that Cameron Crowe directed about the kid wanting to be a music journalist. Almost Um, famous. Yeah. Almost famous. Thank you. It felt like watching almost famous or Forrest Gump or something where I was just continuously watching like folks with long hair and bell bottoms (laughs) run around like groovy man. You know, like that was, it was the feeling I got from this album, I guess. So for me, and this may be getting into my review a little bit early, but whatever, we've been at this for 45 minutes. Um, yeah. It's your podcast, man. Exactly. Do what you want. I do what I want. I'm looking <laughs> at the, the song lineup here. And first off, there are 21 tracks here. And yep. it is easily the tale of two albums for me. Um, mm-hmm. I remember uh, I alluded to this in the preview in our last episode uh, that I grew up with a double version of the cassette tape of this collection, which was originally released on CD, but I didn't have a CD player in my car. So cassette tapes, it was. Um, And they were not divided up in this order uh, to my recollection. Mm. Um, The order of the songs was different. I distinctly remember um, black and white, which is a great song being right after one 
and then Joy to the World being right after that. And they kind of flow together. But I remember mm-hmm. distinctly the second cassette tape of that collection I nearly never listened to. Like, the first one was the one yeah. I liked all the music on, and the second one was uh, like, eh, uh, whatever. Like, I don't need that. Um, yeah. And so I was kind of shocked when this album came up because I picked it on Nostalgia based on the album artwork because I didn't even remember what it was that I had been listening to all those years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I was kind of shocked to see it in this order, and I was kind of shocked by how much of the music I actually really did not like. Uh, because oh, no. of that. Um, there is a lot of good stuff on here, and I enjoy easily 15 of the 21 tracks. But there are, yeah. it was easy to pick a least favorite for me. Let me say that much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, I think one of the things that probably makes it feel dated as I think about it a little bit more here is you've got those tracks that are great, those iconic kind of 60s and 70s rock songs that belong in the Vietnam movies. They belong in the yeah. almost famouses. They, they belong with a montage of some kind somewhere. And then you've got tracks that like belong on crappy used car commercials in between like the NFL game <laughs> on local access cable or something like they just don't yeah. work. Uh, or like a me- cheesy Budweiser commercial for like the Super Bowl or something. I'm going to trash till the world ends. I'm going to trash oh, thank uh, you. pieces of April. I'm going to yeah. trash, um, uh, oh, what's the other one? The Show Must Go On. Those are three tracks that I absolutely will skip every time they come on. I remember liking The Show Must Go On when I was uh-huh. younger because it was fun. Yeah. But it's so dumb. Like, it's It reminded me a little bit of some of the more bombastic stuff from The Wall because mm-hmm. he kind of has that, like, that like almost comedic sort of growl to his voice. And you've got this bouncing like four on the floor thing going and it's really. Well, and I get that it's supposed to be fun, but all I get from that is like sad clowns. Like, yeah, that's all I, yeah, no, it it really does. (laughs) It, It kind of like, it sounds like a musty circus tent. Um, it's funny that song that was one of it depended on my mood mm-hmm. during the day. If I was in a good mood, I was like, "Oh, this song's so dorky and delightful." <laughs> but if I was in a bad mood, I was like, "This trash is making me want to commit murder." This made the is, Billboard charts. Yeah, like how? How it must have been a bad um, year. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and for all all that people complain about hip hop and sampling and by people, I mean like uppity white folks, Mm -hmm. but you know, there's a, there's a lot of complaints about like, Oh, from mainly from people who've never picked up a musical instrument in their, in their life. Uh, There's a lot of complaint about like, Oh, they sampled, you know, blah, 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 or whatever, you know, they didn't Mm -hmm. even make the music. They're just slapping together other parts of other songs. Um, I I did not like the way the show must go on used the the circus march, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like that's a song that I played in high school mm-hmm. for competition concert band. Um, but anyway, I don't, I don't even know where I was going that ex- with that, except for to say that their rendition of it was super campy and, you know, bad and felt like, like well, you said, it- like, it in Sad itself is dated. Music. 
I mean, it yeah. doesn't it yeah. doesn't even sound like what you would play the circus march as today. So. Well, yeah, well they they play they play like John Philip Sousa's circus march or whatever it's called, but on like uh, a Hammond B three organ. And, I was gonna say you know, kazoo, so, but okay. <laughs> I mean, seems, yeah, seems yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, but you know, they t- they take like a '70s goofball aesthetic and slap it onto that song. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, and an- a thing that I think is interesting: some of the songs that you mentioned that were just kind of like total snooze fests. Um, were the like big dramatic ballads. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think ballads more than anything else, for some reason, kind of wind up a lot of them sounding dated, no matter what decade they're from. Listen to a big romantic love ballad from the eighties. You're going to have like synthesized strings and like big pop diva voice. Uh, listen to an R and B ballad from the nineties. It's going to have a very specific production style mm-hmm. and feel. Um, and I, I don't know if that's like just the thing about ballads that, you know, whatever really tugs on the heartstrings, whatever is the, the cheapest, quickest way to like an emotional thrill just happens to be the stuff that ages the worst. But Mm -hmm. that, that was the thing that I noticed in my listening of it was the up-tempo stuff, pretty fun for the most part. But all the ballads did wind up sounding really goofy and cheesy. And there are a couple of ballads that I really like here. But before I get into that, one of the things that I'm struck by, I have it open on Spotify, not a sponsor, uh, looking at the track list here. And one of the things that kind of strikes me is we are not the only people who feels this way about this album, looking at the play counters. Uh, This is an album that's about the haves and the have nots. Um, the complete hit singles has over 200 million listens. But when uh-huh. you go look at it by track, you got songs like one with 35 million views followed by <laughs> yeah, a yeah. L- try a little tenderness with 430,000 views. Um, uh-huh, yeah. And so you got songs that are in the thirties the and forties uh, in millions. And then you got songs with a million, uh, the least yeah. listened to track on this album is uh, actually uh, the family of man with three hundred and eighty-two thousand listens. Uh, yeah, which yeah. I actually—that's one of the ballads that I actually really enjoy on this album. Uh-huh. Um, mainly, I first off the bat, it is kind of cheesy. So your point is not invalidated, but the yeah. the story to that song is really sweet, and uh, it's a crime that. Uh, you know, songs like, I don't know. I mean, the, the songs with lots of listens deserve to have lots of listens. I'm kind of surprised to see that Joy to the World has less than 2.5 million. Uh, whereas an old that is fashioned, a little surprising. Whereas an old-fashioned love song has 5.6 million. Um, and I love an old-fashioned love song. Uh, but Oh, that song's a banger. That's one is. of the ones that I was like, yeah. But then it's got a good. Compare that to Liar. Just over a million views uh, for Liar. And that song's yeah. fabulous. Yeah, that song rips. <laughs> that's that's one of the songs where to me they're they're kind of like higher pitched, all not shrill, but like just on the borderline of shrill vocals really works, especially when they sing the word liar. It just like jumps out. Whatever weird 
British piano they're playing on that song too is amazing because it's not a piano it's like a clarion or whatever they call that thing uh-huh yeah fabulous it, man just in general since we've been like dumping on this album i want to bring up something that like we've been fair I, I don't feel like we've been dumping on it yeah no you're right i i think we've been fair uh and since we're the only two people talking we can make that claim um but i really i really enjoyed the keyboard playing on this album uh you know, in keeping with the theme of double-edged swords, that was a thing that, you know, B3, Hammond B3 organ is just not something we hear that much anymore, or pipe organ or whatever. There was a lot of organ throughout this album. Mm-hmm. But it was really good. Like, the part writing for it was just fantastic. It always meshed with the guitar. Nothing was ever in competition with each other. Nobody was stepping on each other's toes. And, like, the keyboards were some of the best parts of my favorite songs, uh, especially the kind of like weird sort of modulated uh, Wurlitzer on Mama Told Me mm-hmm. was just like mm, chef's kiss. It was like so funky and warm, but it was also like it had that 70s like druggy goofiness that I thought was just so fun. But, you know, even uh, other songs uh, like uh, try a little tenderness. Mm-hmm. It's like church organ that is just perfect for it. Um, so, and I, I meant to mention this off the top of the bat when we were talking and I didn't put it in the show notes, so I'm dumb and forgot it, but I'm glad you mentioned this. I am incredibly partial to music that is driven by some form of keyboard. Uh, there's just yeah. something about yeah. it. Um, the way you're drawn to music that is guitar based, I'm drawn to keyboard uh-huh. based music. And that's one reason I love Billy Joel so much. It's one reason why yeah. I feel the way I do about most music. Uh-huh. And I feel like one of the reasons I kind of latched on to Free Dog Night is they are very keyboard forward in everything. Mm. It doesn't matter what mm. they're doing. Um, yeah. And thankfully, the going back to Double Edged Swords, love keyboards. I hate loops. So when people use keyboards to generate loops, I want to like throw something across. Uh, the room. Uh, yeah, yeah, thankfully, yeah. Three dog night is not that group, but I'm sure yeah. we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's, I don't know. It, it's interesting. Uh, that key, the thing about keyboards uh, that I, I think is so underappreciated or like it, or let me back up here. The reason that I think keyboards don't get used quite as much as guitar in, at least in a lot of the music that you and I spent a lot of time listening to as kids growing up or whatever is because I really think that keys take more skill to play well. Um, And if you look at a lot of the bands from the like late sixties, early seventies, you look at somebody like deep purple mm-hmm. or yes, or this band to be a good keyboardist is a lot harder than being a decent sounding guitarist. Even if you don't have that much technical skill, but those bands that I just mentioned, those, those guys have classical chops. Like mm-hmm. the dude from deep purple is putting in like musical figures that he probably learned playing like, 
fugues and stuff from Boxwell tempered Clavier. Mm-hmm. You know, these are guys who have like a breadth of musical knowledge and they can arrange music and stuff like that. And so it adds a layer of complexity that is super rewarding. Whereas like with guitar, really, honestly, the reason it's so popular is you can plug it into an amp, learn, you know. Well, you don't even have to do that. You just need to pick up a guitar. And play ACDC. Yeah. There, there's there's a reason why every movie and every story has the trope of the, the hitchhiker with a guitar on his back. Like you can take, you can take it with you. with you. Uh, do that with Nobody's... like do that with a grand piano. <laughs> like what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> if you are the guy walking down Route 66 with like a little Casio slung across your back, people are going to stay far away from you because they don't want to get murdered. Exactly. What in the Ted Bundy is that? Yeah, exactly. I don't want to die at the hands of this Mozart wannabe. But, you know, it, it was an element of this music that I thought was just so excellent. And probably, I think, one of the keys to their success, really, when you come down to it, because, like, that was a thing that was popular, and they happened to do it better than probably a lot of their peers, you know. It's one of the things that makes later Beatles albums so enjoyable is because Paul, um, well, later on, Paul started playing, but then um, George Martin, I believe, played a lot of keys on their stuff earlier on when they started expanding their palette outside of guitar, bass, and drums into extra things, you know, even if it wasn't them playing, Mm -hmm. they had somebody who was really good at what they did playing. And so I think, I think that was just a thing that elevated the music when it was a song that I liked on, on this album. All right, Chris. So one of our new segments, uh, synthesizing an album, an entire experience into a word. Uh, Did you come up with a word for uh, this album this week? I did, actually. It kind of helps that I had like three weeks to think about it. Uh, But my word for this album was exuberant. Uh, Because whether I like the song or not, uh, the band is really good for one thing. Uh, I don't think we've touched too much on that. But like the musicians are all very solid musicians. You can't fault them for playing poorly. And in fact, I would say even if I didn't like the songs, there was a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of heart mm-hmm. behind it, which probably sounds like a little bit of like a mealy mouth backhanded compliment. Like I didn't like it, but they were trying hard, but it really was like exuberant music. There was a lot of fun in mm-hmm. a lot of these tunes. What about you? Did you come up with a word? For me, I think the word has to be complicated. Um, so it is exuberant. I agree. I don't disagree with that, but there's a lot of just highs and lows and it's not the type of thing that you would normally think of when you think of a greatest hits album. Uh, we kind of badmouth the George Strait episode, uh, pretty early on with, it was 50 tracks of the exact same song, except for the one single that was on that album. Yeah, uh, yeah. this was just all over the place for me. So complicated, I think is where I'm going to start with. And uh, we'll expound on that a little bit more as we get into our reviews here in a minute. Yeah. Well, I think Avril Levine would be really pleased with your choice of words. Hey, she made uh, she made wallet chains cool again. 
uh, after they'd been out of style for a while. So, <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> uh, all right, Chris. Well, it's been about an hour at this point in time. I think we need to talk about reviews. Uh, there is no critical reception for this album because it's all the Billboard singles. Yeah. Not necessarily the critical hits, reception at the time probably was like, yeah, these guys are great. Look, they're on the charts. Yeah, they, they made it. Cool. Uh, go buy concert tickets. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that, that leaves us with our reviews, which we've been pretty open already. So I don't think we're going to surprise anybody here. But uh, for, yeah. for listeners of the show, since it's been a couple of weeks, just a quick reminder, we use a one to six guitar string review model, which... Uh, basically means if it's a one string album, you know, you can get that trash out of here. It's a quarter at a garage sale and uh, you can have the whole box if you'll just take it away. Cause I'm taking it to the dump later. Uh, and then <laughs> six guitar strings is uh, get that thing in the library of Congress right now because it's the greatest album ever. So where do you fall with three dog nights? Greatest hits, Chris? Well, I think I've already kind of, mentioned there were individual songs on this album that I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I, I mentioned mama told me not to come. That's a great song. Shambhala, super fun and entertaining one, which was maybe one of the most pleasant surprises because, you know, everybody's heard that one is the loneliest. Mm -hmm. You know, it's such a fun, catchy thing. Um, uh, we talked about the vocals being a double-edged sword when they were on, man, it was pretty impressive to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the thing that makes, you know, this band so fun and satisfying the Eagles uh, queen, you know, guys standing around a microphone singing really great harmonies is really entertaining. So I love that. We talked about the keyboard parts, uh, I didn't mention guitar parts that much because the guitar was really workmanlike in this album. You know, it just, the guy or guys, probably whoever the four or five guys that rotated through the band were, they all came in and they did their thing and they wrote good parts that fit the song. Um, so there were, there were points about it that I enjoyed, but man, when I wasn't enjoying this album, I really wasn't enjoying this album. There were some songs that were kind of capably executed, but they weren't very memorable. Um, you know, there were some songs that outside of being not memorable were also just super cheesy. Um, and outside of being super cheesy, there were some songs like we mentioned, the show must go on that were just terribly annoying. <laughs> uh, you know, I, there's only so much I can take of, uh, you know, four on the floor circus music. I just didn't, I really didn't jive with it. Um, and I haven't stopped to run the number, so I don't know which songs out, outnumber which ones did I enjoy more of them? Did I dislike more of them? Uh, my gut feeling is that I forgot about more songs than I remember, but the ones that I remember, I remember really strongly. Mm -hmm. So I think 
to give this kind of a fair rating, <laughs> I would have to say three and a half out of six strings. I don't know what you can do with half a string. I've kind of run into this quandary before trying to give something a 0.5 string rating. Um, but for me, the band was not quite as good as the sum of its parts. So that's what I'm going to stick at. 3.5 out of six strings. What about you? How did you feel about this album? You know, I really remember this album being a lot different than I remember it. Um, so, or that sounded really dumb. I, I really remember this. It sounds album like being their experience of is. the sixties and seventies. Probably <laughs> this was a lot different than I remember it. Uh, no. So I really do. I remember this album being different than it really is. And so it was kind of interesting to sit down and give it a listen for the first time. And probably it's probably been about 15 years since I listened to this album start to finish. Uh, maybe longer ago than that, uh, especially realizing that the cassette tapes were organized in a different order. And I guarantee you, I never listened to the B sides, if you will. Yeah, um, yeah. This album is a bunch of hit and miss stuff for me because of that. Uh, I have selective memory, kind of like you're mentioning there, where the stuff that works really, really works. And unfortunately, oh, yeah. they had all that stuff on one cassette, and I don't remember the others. <laughs> um, there's a lot to love about this group and you see elements of three dog night in other seventies and eighties groups. You see the progression of music in their music. Uh, I made a joke during the outro of our last episode when we picked this, that they really are a moment in time. This is such a narrow window of success that they were able to then have reunion tours on. Uh, they're really only creating music in the 19th, the late 60s and very early 70s. And then it's frozen in time. It's a moment in time for music. Uh, one thing we didn't mention is they did release a, not a full album. They released a ska album in 1981 and it is absolute trash. Uh, and that mm. album is only like five tracks long. It's only like 15 minutes total. So it's not even a full album, uh, but it's terrible, uh, unlistenable. And to the point that when you go look at their Wikipedia album, it's basically a footnote. And I feel like that's endemic of who Three Dog Night has become for most rock musicians. They're a footnote in that moment in time that, hey, these guys existed. They were really good for a while, but we've moved on past it. And I feel like, for me, and this hurts my feelings to say, I kind of feel the same way. Um, I enjoyed, let's say, 11 of the 21 tracks uh, that I like, let's say, and then I can stand another five of them, and then the rest of them could just burn in the trash uh, of the Warner Brothers fire, and I'd be okay uh, with them not existing anymore. Um so that said, uh, three and a half seems like a pretty fair review. Um, this is my album, and I feel really bad doing this. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to give it two and a half. Ooh, Maybe. actually, I'll a tell you what. new low. I'll tell you what. I'm going to give it 
three and that half that half a string is nostalgia pulling me like I just can't do that to it. Yeah. So three. Yeah. Three because I have a Fair. lot of great memories. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for the memory guys. Oh man, love <laughs> it. Uh could not have been said any better. Well, um, I'm sorry that you didn't you didn't enjoy it quite as much as you remember. <laughs> We knew it was dangerous ground when the the Oracle told me that we were doing Three Dog Nights 1, and I pulled it up on Spotify to make sure it was like, the right hey, album. And I was like, oh, that's this is not wrong. the one I thought it was. Yeah, exactly. That's so we funny. knew it was not good territory to be on. <laughs> that's too funny. And then, and then well, we spent a month dragging it out. So it's only been like <laughs> seething in me, like what kind of depression, what what kind of bad decisions was I making as a teenager? That's so funny. No. Well, I, I think probably you were having a good time as a teenager <laughs> because you remember all the fun songs. Oh, Hopefully you weren't, um, you weren't spending your teen years uh, listening to uh, Sunday in April or whatever the name of that song was. I can't even remember. Um, but let's, so let's talk about that. What, what is your favorite track from this album what sticks with you the most all right so i love a lot of tracks on this album i think there's a lot of iconic songs and it kind of hurt my feelings when i was looking at the play count just earlier um that songs that i really like like black and white um liar one man band um Mm -hmm. celebrate you know, great tracks that don't have the the staying power. Even try a little tenderness. And there's yeah. great songs on here that I really enjoy. Uh, but the one that when you tell me Three Dog Night, the immediate lyric that comes to my mind and the song that comes to my mind just whip fast every time is the opening lyric to Joy to the World. Yeah. And so yeah. It's, it's my favorite. Um, and it's funny because I am the least hippie person you will ever meet uh oh yeah like oh yes i'm an anti-hippie in fact in a lot of cases <laughs> like go wash uh this song is the, <laughs> this song he said is... go wash <laughs> you heard it first hippies wood johnson says go wash uh, this song though Love seriously it. is probably the most hippie song on the entire album when you sit down oh, and look yes. at the lyrics um first off the song starts zero volume there's nothing going on and out of nowhere is this harmony of uh not a harmony just the single voice uh you know Uh jeremiah was a bullfrog was a good friend of mine i never understood a single word he said but i helped him drink his wine and he always had some mighty fine wine so first off guy's stoned out of his mind some bullfrogs talking to him (laughs) easily the most 70s lyric well, and, there has ever been in a song. And then you've got the chorus, which is a really short chorus. Um, you know, singing joy to the world, all the boys and girls, joy to the fishes in the deep blue sea, joy to you and me. And then the next verse is, and if I were the king of the world, I tell you what I'd do. I'd throw away all the cars and the bars and the war, and I'd make sweet love to you. Like, so the rest is even the- more. Oh man, that's even more. It just keeps doubling down on the hippie stuff. Uh, and that's so, so funny. um, and then the last line, it does, it repeats the chorus a bunch, which is normally a musical sin to me, but the last verse of it, um, says, you know, I love the ladies. I love to have my fun. 
Uh, I'm a high life flyer and a rainbow rider and a straight shooting son of a gun. I said a straight shooting son of a gun. That's a pretty cool line. It's amazing. So this song. It's fantastic. It's easy to sing along to because that's the three verses. And then it's like 12 copies of the same chorus over and Uh over again. So, and it's just so much fun. So that's my favorite song just because it just is great. And the music's phenomenal. It's one of those songs that's got a great guitar uh, riff going on throughout it. Um, Really keys forward and the vocals are just phenomenal. So the hippiest song on the album and I'm the biggest fan of it. Yeah. What was your favorite song? Okay. So my favorite, I already mentioned it uh, was mama told me not to come because that's a song that I've heard on the radio a bunch and never knew who it was by Mm -hmm. already established this, but man, it is the like goofiest. It's, it's like the squares anthem Mm -hmm. because uh, and it's really not because I'm sure it was tongue in cheek. You were talking about how much, uh, how much drugs these guys did. Like <laughs> this, this is a song about a bad trip, mm-hmm. and it is so funny. I I love all the uh, all the euphemisms. Like it starts off, want some whiskey in your water, sugar in your tea. Uh, let's see, and he <laughs> he says, and that cigarette you're smoking about to scare me half to death. Um, uh, I think I'm almost choking from the smell of stale perfume. It's just really funny. And the way the guy delivers the vocals, mm-hmm. he's like a total epitome of the, like, I'm freaking out, man. You know, like, <laughs> so I, on top of the music being fantastic, um, I just like, like, it's funny. It's a funny, like slice of seventies drug fueled paranoia but mixed with this funny, you know, like mom told me I shouldn't go do this yet. Here I am. And I really regret it. Don't do drugs kids. Um, and, and like a funny note about that song that I, I thought was just added to the weirdness. Randy Newman wrote that song mm-hmm. for Eric Burden, mm-hmm. one of Eric Burden's solo albums, which I looked and looked and couldn't find the Eric Burden version of it, but you can find Randy Newman's, like his take on this song on one of his albums. Um, but man, I love that song. It cracks me up every single time. Very good. All right. So let's talk least favorite. You and I have hit the nail on the head once again. So there's clearly a last place finisher on this. track. Uh-huh. So why don't you tell me your process and I'll tell you why I didn't like it. Uh, so the, the least favorite tune I, almost picked the show must go on because which was would just, have been a crime it is uh, bad but it is still like, it's at least fun. fun yeah it like i said depending on my mood if i heard it on a good day i'd be like oh man this song is so silly and fun uh but my least favorite was till the world ends um because at that point i remember vividly when i was listening to this at work just I kept checking the track list like is this album done yet because they kind of exhaust all the good ones about two-thirds of the way through the track list and so then you're stuck listening to like these just songs that were popular in their day and just aren't very engaging at least they weren't to me but till the world ends was just the most dated cheesiest tune um all I could think of was like 
I don't know, like the kind of prom dance that like Carrie gets a bunch of like pig blood dumped on her during like it was just sappy. Like the singing is this really overblown, like saccharine vocal delivery. Uh, it had strings, which I, I, I tend to either love orchestral stuff or hate it. Mm-hmm. And I just absolutely hated it. It was so like, I don't know. I could just, it, it sounded very much of its time in a way that made me think of like shag carpet and Coke everywhere. Mm-hmm. And like just, just like a bad scene, man. I just didn't like it. So that was my, uh, that was my least favorite tune. I, is it pretty safe to assume that your least favorite is also till the world ends? It is. And there is, there's kind of an interesting story to it. So it's, it's just a bad song. First of all, like let's not even drop it up or prop it up. Yeah. And the guy who wrote and produced it for Three Dog Night is also the guy who wrote Pieces of April. So you can kind of see uh-huh. a through line yeah. there. Um, uh-huh. Pieces of April topped out at like Billboard 18 or 19. Like it got pretty high up the Billboard list. And this one stalled out in the, the low 30s. But really didn't do that great anyway because it's kind of a cheesy ballad. <laughs> the guy who wrote it is the lesser known of the Logginses, uh, no relation, but it's David Loggins. So not, not Kenny Loggins, but you know, not whatever. Kenny, but his, his brother, David, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And probably not his brother. I did not vet that. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, he has, he is a traditional ballad writer. Um, you look at his kind of music scoring history, like the music he's written and he's written music for like country ballad singers. Um, Tanya Tucker, Reba McIntyre, Billy Ray Cyrus, uh, people like that. Uh, the thing he's most famous for, I just love this so much. Um, he wrote the theme music for the Augusta National Golf Club. Uh, so when you're watching the Masters on like the PGA on whatever uh-huh. broadcast, uh, that is a song. That theme music is music he wrote in the 1980s. That's so funny. Uh, so how odd. I just I hate this song <laughs> for a lot of reasons. The lyrics make no sense at all. Uh and then it's just kind of funny that all right, so the the guy who wrote this wrote one of the other worst songs on this compilation and uh also wrote music for golf cuz he's boring. So there you go. <laughs> I'm sorry David if you're listening. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. Uh, uh well, We've made it through another three dog night here at two dudes and tunes. Why don't you take a look at what the Oracle has in store for us next? All right, man. So we're picking from your list uh, tonight. And so let's see if I knock on the right door here. Uh, looks like it's number 14 off of your list, which is David Bazan's 2011 album, Strange Negotiations. All right. Uh, yes, another, indeed. another album I don't know anything about. So give me a preview. Uh, well this, so David Bazan is 
responsible for maybe my favorite solo acoustic show I've ever been to. Okay. I'll say that. And I'll also add that he has a lot of interesting songs about wrestling with the loss of his faith. Okay. So very, very heady lyrical content uh, as opposed to um, funny cigarettes and (laughs) (laughs) um, Jeremiah and his bullfrog or Jeremiah was a bullfrog. It it wasn't his pet bullfrog they were talking to, but um, anyway, definitely a departure from this. So if you're one of those people who likes uh, a really, um, really diverse selection of episodes, you've come to the right podcast. Awesome. Well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up here, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I hope you've been enjoying your, our show, uh, rate and review it on your podcast, uh, application of choice and let us know what you think. Uh, Chris and I are pretty committed to reading your comments on the air. Even if they're really, really mean, uh, I tend to giggle, uh, when that happens. So if you want to hear a grown guy, uh, turn into like a five-year-old, it'll be great. Uh, Chris, take us home. Yeah, um, if you guys want to get in touch with us, shoot us an email at two dudes and tunes at gmail.com. Uh, don't forget to, to hit us up on Instagram. Uh, Facebook, I don't know what's going on with Facebook. Something weird happened where I don't have access to our, uh, our Facebook page anymore. Um, maybe that's a sign we need to get off the lesser social media platform. Who knows? But uh, Instagram and our email right now are the best way to reach us. Uh, Tell us what you thought of this episode. Tell us what you thought of the complete hit singles. And don't forget to tune in next Wednesday where we negotiate the strange waters of faith as seen through the lens of a West Coast indie rocker. You guys take care.